Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Coming Resurrection. Amen. Well, after Paul started the church of Corinth, we know that he was there, according to Acts chapter 18, he was there in Corinth for a whole year and a half. And I hope you guys remember what he was doing for a year and a half. The Bible says for a year and a half, while Paul was in Corinth, he was teaching the word of God to the church. There's nothing better that a pastor can do. There's lots of great things a pastor can do for his congregation, but the best thing a pastor can do for his congregation is to do what Jesus told Pastor Pete to do, and that is to feed my sheep. And that's what Paul did for a year and a half. And while he was there, ministering in Corinth, leading the church, teaching the word. Everything was so good in Corinth, in the church of Corinth. But then he left. He got called out somewhere else. And after he left, everything began to unravel. It began to unravel because new leadership was put in place. And the new leadership that was put in place in the church of Corinth was weak leadership. And it was weak Because these new leaders began to tolerate false teachings in the church. Paul hears about it later on. He's so upset. The church that he founded, the church that he started, the church that he loved, the people that he loved, were being duped by false teachers. Now, one of the false teachings that was circulating around the church in that day was this. False teachers were saying, there is no resurrection of the dead. And so Paul's like, what is going on? Well, here's what was going on. The resurrection was under attack in Corinth. And by the way, I don't know if you knew this or not, but the resurrection is still under attack today. Today in pulpits all across the world and all across America. Christian churches, the resurrection is under attack. I read one article this week that's pretty recent. It's from the Religious News Service, and the question is, the the, the title of the article is, Can You Question the Resurrection and Still Be a Christian? Now, can can you help me out? What's the answer? No. No, absolutely not. But apparently, there are some in pulpits today that say, yeah. And so, I want to read just portions of the article It says, did Jesus literally rise from the dead in a bodily resurrection as many traditional and conservative Christians believe? Or was his rising a symbolic one? A restoration of his spirit of love and compassion to the world as members of some of the more liberal brands of Christianity hold. Now, one minister that they quote in the article says, and I quote, more people have problems with Easter Because it requires believing that Jesus rose from the dead. But believing in the resurrection is essential. It shows that nothing is impossible with God. In fact, Easter without the resurrection is utterly meaningless. And so, you know, thank God there are are people that still believe in the resurrection today. But not everybody. For example, retired Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Spong And I'll put his picture up there on the screen so that you can see what a wolf in sheep's clothing really looks like. 
This guy denies the virgin birth of Christ. He denies the atonement of Christ. He says that Jesus did not die for our sins. He says that the the sacrifice of Jesus on a cross for sins is barbarian. It's based on primitive ideas, and it must be dismissed. And you guessed it, he also denies the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's this guy doing in the pulpit? What's he doing in the church? And yet the Episcopal Church of the United States of America has given him a platform for decades to espouse his heresy. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people will sit, and he's retired now, but when he was preaching in his church and listen to the nonsense that he espoused. And ladies and gentlemen, in case you were wondering if I'm passionate about this, I'm passionate about this because I love people and I know that all eternity is on the line based upon how we divide the word of truth. Christ died for our sins. He rose, literally, physically, he rose again. And so, man, back in Luke chapter 24, we know he rose again. It's there. He walks into a room. The disciples think it's a spirit. And the disciples are afraid. And he says, hey, put your, hand, your fingers in my, in my holes in my hands. Stick your hand in my side. Spirits don't have bodies. Here's, here's the, the fundamental truth of Christianity. That Jesus is risen. And he's risen in a glorified, tangible, eternal body. And so thank God that even though over the years the church, and I use that word loosely, has been filled with theological liberals that have denied everything this book has to say. Well, thank God that there, over the years, have been true men of God who have not eroded the faith of believers, but strengthened the faith of believers and would not ever even think about denying a literal resurrection. Men like, for example, uh, Charles Spurgeon. Please, let's change the picture. There, that's so much better. A true man of God. Charles Spurgeon, Baptist preacher in the 19th century, pastored London's Metropolitan Tabernacle for 38 years. And by the way, can I encourage you guys about something? Don't get your theology from Google. Some people do that. They'll have a question about theology and they'll just Google it. And of course, you get all the liberal theologians are right there alongside of the Bible-believing theologians. And so every week, I try to give you names, names of men of God, women of God, who have stood true to the word of God. And so don't get your theology from Google. Make sure you're getting your theology from people that actually believe this book. And so Charles Spurgeon, concerning the resurrection, said, and I quote, I suppose, brethren, that we may have persons arise in the future who will doubt whether there was ever such a man as Julius Caesar or Napoleon. And when they do, when all reliable history is flung to the wind, then and only then they may begin to question whether Jesus Christ rose from the dead. For this, listen to this, concerning the resurrection, the bodily, literal resurrection of Jesus. He says, um, for this historical fact is attested by more witnesses than almost any other fact that stands on record in history, whether sacred or profane. Thank God for men of God and women of God over time through church history have stood and have proclaimed the truth of the resurrection like Paul did. And so Paul finds out that there are people in Corinth that are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. And so you saw it last week 
We went through it, the whole sermon. If you missed last week, you gotta go back, download our church app, listen to it, watch it, however you wanna access last week's message, but watch it, make sure you understand so that when someone asks you for the hope that is inside of you, you don't say, well, I just believe. You believe what you believe, I'll believe what I believe. No, there's evidence that the literal resurrection of Christ actually occurred. We saw it last week, the evidence of the church, the evidence of fulfilled prophecy or scriptures. We also saw the evidence of the eyewitnesses, over 500 of them, who saw Jesus alive after he had been dead. And then the evidence of Paul's changed life. Paul said all that last week. He's got a lot more to say this week. So let's, let's go ahead and dig in. Look at verse 12. He says, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? You know, Paul's like, S-M-H, shake my head. I don't get this. <laughs> he says in verse 13, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching's empty. Your faith is empty. Yes, and we're found false witnesses of God. We're liars. Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. Verse 16. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we are of all men the most pitiable or pitiful. And so if you're taking notes, here's your first point. If Christ has not risen, then you and I, we're the most pitiful people on the planet. Now I know there's some people who would agree with that point, by the way. But this is what Paul's trying to say. He said in verse 14, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, our preaching is empty. In other words, those of us who espouse the literal resurrection, the historicity, the fact of Christ's resurrection, we're just a bunch of windbags. We're just blowing hot air. He says in verse 14 also, if, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, your faith is futile. It's empty. Everything you believe is a lie. So why are you here at church? Why are you here um, um, worshiping a dead Jew? Why are you here listening to the Bible? If Christ didn't rise from the dead, you should be on the golf course. You should be fishing or something. He says also in verse 15, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then the eyewitnesses, okay, the eyewitnesses that saw Jesus alive after he had been dead, Peter, the 12, over 500 brethren, all the apostles, James, and then Paul himself, they all got together and they concocted a big lie. All 500 plus of them got together. They had some kind of meeting and said, all right, here's the thing. We're gonna make up this big lie. We're gonna get rich off of religion. We're gonna get our condos over on the Mediterranean Sea. And so don't back down from this lie. No matter if they torture you or persecute you or throw stones at you or crucify you or shoot you through the heart with arrows, or whatever, you gotta hold fast to this lie. He says, hey, if Christ didn't die and rise again from the dead, then we're liars, we made it all up. 
In 17, verse 17, he says, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we're still in our sins. And so Jesus was just a religious guy who was murdered. He wasn't the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says in verse 18, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then those who died have perished. Think right now of your loved one who's gone on to be with the Lord. Hey, if Christ rise from the dead, you'll never see that person again. And then for all these reasons in verse 19, that's why Paul said that if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we are of all people most pitiful. And so we should be pitied as Christians because we put our hope, our trust, our anticipation for a future resurrection, we put all of that in a dead, crucified Jew. I was reading in preparation for this message this past week, and I came across a story in John Phillips' commentary on, on 1 Corinthians about a faithful German pastor who took his stand in the face of tyranny. Back when Hitler was rising and the Nazi party was arising in Germany, there was one pastor, Schutez, who stood stood firm and continued to teach the word of God faithfully to his flock and to the point where the fascist leaders in Germany took note of this faithful pastor. And then one day, the Nazis had one of their big political rallies. You guys have ever seen it on the History Channel, these massive rallies where there's thousands of people and stickers all over the place, right? And so in one of those rallies, here's this pompous fascist standing at the podium and he's railing against Jews, as the Nazis were known to do. And he knew who Pastor Schutes was, and he spotted him out in the crowd. And he, he stops the whole rally, and he says, Pastor Schutes, you're a fool. You're a fool for putting your trust in a dead, crucified Jew. And right then, everybody looks at the humble pastor. <laughs> What's he gonna do? What's he gonna say? And that pastor determined that he was going to be faithful even in the midst of a hostile crowd. And this guy, I would love to have seen this. this, this pastor, he stands up and he raises his voice and he says, and I quote, yes, sir, I should be indeed a fool if I believed in a crucified dead Jew, but I believe in the risen and living son of God. Right there in a Nazi rally. Can you imagine the guts? Can you imagine the guts that it took to say that? Of course, he became a wanted man by the Gestapo, but he was able to escape to America before they could arrest him. And so was Jesus a Jew? Praise God, yes. Absolutely. The beginning of Matthew's gospel says the genealogy, the, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He was absolutely a Jew. But the beginning verse in John's gospel says he's more than just a man. The beginning verse in John's gospel equates the word with Jesus, and the first verse of John's gospel says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word, help me out, was God. And so man, thank God for a faithful pastor during a difficult time, who refused to be pitied, but he took his stand for Jesus Christ. Look at verse 20. Paul writes, but now Christ 
is risen from the dead. And he has become the first fruits. You may want to underline that. First fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So your next point, if you're taking notes, Christ's resurrection assures our resurrection. This is such good news. What is this saying? This is saying that you and I have a bright future if Jesus is our master and Lord. So bright, so incredible. Christ's resurrection assures our resurrection. Now he talked about Jesus being the first fruits. And so if you're new to the Bible, you gotta understand that in the Old Testament, the Jews had seven festivals or seven feast days every year. And so the, the first half of the year, they had the Feast of Passover. And then they had the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then they had the Feast of First Fruits, which Paul calls Jesus in verse 20, or equates Jesus with in verse 20. And then 50 days later, they have the Feast of Pentecost. In the second half of the Jewish calendar, they have the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, but the Feast of First Fruits is what Paul writes about in verse 20. And you gotta understand that the Feast of First Fruits took place every year. Listen to this, stay with me here. And it always took place on the day following the Sabbath, which followed Passover. Okay, so, so you had Passover, and then the weekly Sabbath. What day did the weekly Sabbath on the Jewish calendar fall on? Saturday. And the Feast of First Fruits always happened the very next day. So the Feast of First Fruits occurred on Sunday. And so during the Feast of First Fruits, an Israelite would go out to the field. The field um, was not quite ripe, but there were some first fruits out in the field that were ripe and ready to be harvested. And so the Israelite would go out into the field and he would cut down a sheaf of barley and he would take that sheaf of barley, he would take that first ripened bundle of grain over to the tabernacle or later on to the temple and he would present it to the priest. And on that, gotta follow me here, on that Sunday, the priest would take that sheaf of barley, that first fruit, and he would wave it before the Lord. And, and the idea there is, Lord, thank you so much for these first fruits, and because of the, you provided the first fruits, we anticipate a whole harvest. Thousands of fields in the future, in the near future, that we're gonna harvest, and we're gonna be able to reap, and we're gonna enjoy. And so, look again at verse 20. Let's tie this in with Jesus. But now Christ is risen from the dead, and he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Can I have your attention, please? Check this out. Jesus Christ, about 2,000 years ago, he dies on Passover. He's dead. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world died on a cross. And then, on the Sabbath day, Saturday, his body's in the grave. But then on Sunday, Jesus comes alive and he walks with his new, resurrected, glorified body, tangible. 
He walks out of the grave, victorious over sin, death, and hell, and the curse. And on that same day that Jesus walked out of the grave, on that same day, the priest is down at the temple, and he's waving the sheaf of barley, the first fruits to the Lord. And he's saying, thank you, God, for this first fruits. And we anticipate that you're going to provide the rest of the harvest. And so what's the idea here? Jesus gets up. He walks out of the grave, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean? That means that we anticipate a coming resurrection in the future. Why? Because Jesus is risen. Because Jesus is risen, we will rise. That's what that verse means. And that's why Jesus said in John 14, 19, because I live, you will live also. Ladies and gentlemen, don't put your hope in this world. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. But this world's going to get worse and worse and worse, not better. What we see happening in France is going to start happening all over the world. And should we fight it? Yes. We should fight it with every fiber of our being. We should fight it. But we got to understand that we're not going to make this world better. Jesus is going to make this world better when he returns. And when we've been there for a million years, we're not even going to halfway, halfway remember all the details of this short life. And yet, what are we doing focusing on this life, putting all of our hope into this life as if eternity doesn't exist? As Francis Chan said in one of his sermons, as he made a dot on the floor and threw out a rope going outside the church and into the parking lot, don't live for the dot which represents this life. Live for the line that goes out into eternity. That's where our hope is. That's where We anticipate the resurrection of the dead. If you believe in the resurrection, can you say amen? Amen. Right? It's coming. It's coming. Look at verse 21. He says, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be, what? Made alive. Paul says, I have good news and bad news. I'll start with the bad news. The bad news is in 22a. For as in Adam, all die. That's bad news, isn't it? You guys remember Romans chapter five, verse 12? Just as through one man, that's Adam, sin entered the world, and and what's the word there? Death through sin. And thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. And so what you got to understand is that when God created the world, initially it was perfect. It was beautiful. It was Eden. There was no sin. There was no curse. There was no disease. There was no death. Everything was as God wanted it to be. We screwed it up, not God. You know, sometimes when there's a tragedy in the world, people try to blame God Go back and read Genesis 1 through 3. When he created, it was good. In fact, it was very good. We messed it up. He gave us free will. Adam deliberately disobeyed the Lord. He ate the forbidden fruit, and the fall of man occurred. And because of the fall of man, that's why we have these natural disasters. That's why we have terrorist attacks. That's why our loved ones die and our hearts break. 
Why? Because Adam, through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Aren't you glad there's good news? What's the good news? That's found in 22b. Even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. Now if you're new to Calvary or new to the Bible or new to the church, whatever, listen, listen, this is the gospel right here. God looks down. Remember, he made it perfect, beautiful, paradise. We messed it up. And now there's all kind of horrible things happening in his creation. You know what he could have done? He could have drop kicked us across the universe and said, forget it. But here's the gospel. Instead of drop kicking us across the universe and damning all of us to hell, here's the gospel. He looked down at our dreadful condition and God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. There's the answer right there. Ladies and gentlemen, there's the answer. I believe in voting for great politicians. I, I, I believe in strengthening our armed forces. I believe that, man, wouldn't it be great if somehow America could get back to her roots and moral decency could once again be seen in this land. I'm, I'm for all of that, but here's what I know. That's not, in the end, that's not the answer. The answer is not our, who we're gonna elect next November. And I'm gonna vote for the, the, the best person that, that God leads me to vote for. But I understand in voting for that person, that's not the answer. The answer is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And the son is the answer. Not a formula, not a self-help book that you read uh, on your spare time trying to make yourself better. No, none of that is the answer. The answer is Jesus. He always has been, he is, and he always will be the only answer for us. We gotta turn to him. We gotta follow him. We gotta do it his way. And so he came. He clothes himself in a human body, the eternal God. He goes to a Roman cross. He dies on that cross. Not a, not, it's, it's not some you know, belief in primitive history. It's not a, something that as barbarians that, that we should dismiss as some bishops in the church say. No, it's everything. He died because the wages of Adam's sin and our sin is death. So he pays the penalty. And right before he gives up his last breath, he says, paid in full. I did everything I can do. I don't know what else to do. I paid for all their sins, past, present, future. What else can I do? He says, paid in full. Full, and yet we have the audacity to blame terrorist attacks on God or natural disasters on God or the fact that some pastor's wife gets shot in the head. We blame that on God. It's not God's fault. He did everything he could ever do. He paid for all of our sins in full. He rose again the third day. He says, come to me. I have the answer. Come to me. I am the answer. And so he dies for our sins. On the third day, he rises again. And now, this is what the message is. It's not an Adam all die. Here's the new message. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall what? He'll live. He'll live. There's the answer you're looking for right there. 
Some of you guys are going through a really hard time. You're scratching your head. You're wondering, what's the meaning of life? What do I do next? The answer is right there. It's Jesus, because only through Jesus are you gonna live an abundant life in this life, an eternal life in the next. Now that verse has a very, very special meaning to me and my family, and here's why. On March 2nd, 2013, just a few weeks after my dad had passed away, my mom called me on that day, 7 a.m., and she's crying. Of course she's crying. Her best friend of 59 years had passed away. Now, what I love about my mom is that she spends time with Jesus every single morning. And so she's crying and she's talking to me and, and as she's talking about dad, um, God put that verse on my heart. And so I grab my Bible and she's still talking and I'm turning to John eleven twenty five, and I'm holding it and I'm waiting to share it, hopefully to encourage and comfort her. And then she talks about her devotion that morning. She said it's something about a, Jesus saying that uh, he's the resurrection. And I said, Mom, look down at your devotional. What's the verse for this morning? She says, hold on, hold on let, me, let me read it. Uh, John eleven twenty five. 25. I said, Mom, I got that verse opened in my Bible right now. I've, I've been waiting for the right time to share it with you. By the way, isn't God good? Yeah. Right? God is so good. Here's why God's so good. Because he says, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me, though he may die. My dad had just died. Our hearts are broken. He was an awesome father. He loved us. And he's dead and we're, we're, we're heartbroken, especially my mom. But here's the good news. Though he may die, he shall live. And it's the same hope for all of us, the sure hope. That if we have turned from our sins and we have received the free gift of Christ's salvation, that even though we are going to die at some point, listen, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul said to depart and be with Christ is far better. There is no soul sleep. When you know Christ, you die. Instantaneously you are in his presence. There is no purgatory. You don't have to go somewhere to kind of be refined for your sins. He said, paid in full. We don't deserve it, but we go there immediately because we're clothed in Christ's righteousness. And that's good news, but there's even better news. Even though when we take our last breath here on earth and we're immediately in the presence of the Lord and we shall live, there's coming a day in the future when our spirit will be reunited with the dust in the grave and we will rise and we will have resurrected, glorified bodies that are immortal, eternal, indestructible. And in those bodies, we will worship Jesus forever and ever and ever. It's awesome good news. This is how we need to change our focus and focus on these eternal things. Look at verse 23 now. We're all gonna rise who know Christ. He says, but each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. Okay, that's the rapture. We'll talk about that next week. And then comes the end, the end of history as we know it, Speaking about the horrible time of the tribulation, seven years where all hell breaks loose on the earth, 
chronicled in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, if you want to read it later. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God. Do you remember after the tribulation, Jesus comes back literally to this world? He reigns for a thousand years, okay? He delivers the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign. This is the millennium. This is when he puts to end the rule, the authority, the power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. If you're taking notes, during the millennium, Christ will reign. This is such a glorious time in our future that we can, again, look forward to. The millennium, the word millennium is made up of two Latin words. Milli, which means a thousand, annum, which means year. If you want to write down somewhere, it's found in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. And by the way, in those verses, in Revelation 20, he repeats the phrase 1,000 years six times. Why does he do that? Because he wants us to know there's a literal 1,000-year kingdom coming in the future. It breaks my heart that many in the church are post-millennialists. They don't believe in a literal rendering of Revelation 21 through 6. They think the church is going to bring in the kingdom age. They think the millennium is just a long time and we're going to Christianize the world. Post-millennial, po- the post-millennial position is a false position. Good brothers and sisters who believe it, we respectfully disagree. It's so sad that some in the church take the all-millennialist position. Ah, in Latin meaning no. They outright say there's, there's no millennium in the future. That Christ is sitting on the throne right now. And he's reigning. Here's the problem with all millennialists and their position. Right? They will interpret all the prophecies of Christ's first coming literally. But then when it comes to some of the prophecies concerning his second coming, they change their hermeneutic, they change the way they interpret the Bible, and now all of a sudden they're spiritualizing or interpreting it in an allegorical way. That's a double standard. It's not right. We, there's good brothers and sisters who believe it. We respectfully disagree. No, we take the Bible at face value. When the, good, when the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense lest you get nonsense. He says a thousand years six times. How many times does he have to say it? It's coming. Jesus is going to come back literally to this earth. He will reign as the son of David over Israel and the world for 1,000 years. And he'll fulfill the Davidic covenant. And he'll fulfill all the prophecies about the son of David coming to literally reign on this earth. It's going to happen. It's going to be an awesome time. And concerning that future 1,000-year reign of Christ, I love this. I was going to just kind of paraphrase it, but I'll just read it straight from uh, John Phillips' work. Sometimes people write things, and I'm like, the congregation needs to hear this. So if you're with me here, say amen. amen. When the Lord returns to the earth, he will reign, first of all, in his David character and put down all his foes by might and power. Satan, the beast, the false prophet, all the Lord's foes, human, angelic, demonic, he will summarily deal with them. Then the Lord will reign in his Solomon character as the prince of peace. 
The world will know at last prosperity and order. All right, this is what we're looking for, especially after what happened this week. Under a reign of absolute righteousness, such as it has never experienced since the fall of Adam. Satan will be incarcerated in the abyss. Ten centuries will pass. The glowing Old Testament prophecies will come true. The desert will blossom as a rose. The harvest will be bountiful. The lion and the lamb will lie down together. A man will be but a youth at 100 years of age. It'll be a golden age. The Bible will be at the core of every curriculum. Spirit-filled men and women will teach the arts and the sciences. It will be an age of peace and prosperity and progress. If you're looking forward to that day, thank the Lord that it's coming soon. I can't wait. It's gonna be awesome. And by the way, we could be there sooner than we know it because this life is just a vapor. Now look, please, at verse 26. He says, the last enemy that will be destroyed is what? Death. And so, check it out again. The rapture occurs. The bride of Christ is snatched up. Seven years, all hell breaks loose on the earth. Jesus comes back literally. He touches down on the Mount of Olives. He rules and reigns for a thousand years as the son of David. And then at the end of the millennium, because Satan has been incarcerated for a thousand years, Satan will be allowed to be loosed. The Bible says that he's going to go across the world and he is going to recruit an army, the number of which is like the sand on the seashore. I read that and I think, what? Okay, wait a minute. Jesus has literally been reigning on the earth for 10 centuries, and there are, there's an army, the number, a countless number that are against Jesus? Doesn't that show you the wickedness of our hearts? Even though Satan is bound for a thousand years, because hum, human beings will enter into the millennium, those human beings will grow up, they'll get married, they'll have kids, those kids will need to get saved. But by the end of 10 centuries, there'll be millions of people on the earth who were born once, but they were never born again. They were born physically, but they were never born spiritually. Somehow, some way, they reject the rule of the literal son of David who's reigning in Israel. And those people will come against the Lord, as mind-boggling as it seems, it's in the Bible, and they will attack, and God will take care of it. And he will wipe them out, and Satan finally, thank God, Lucifer will be thrown into the lake of fire, never to bother us again. At that time is the second resurrection. Right, First resurrection happens before the millennium in stages. Don't have time to get into all that. Second resurrection happens after the millennium. It's the resurrection of the wicked. And the unsaved dead from all of history stand before a great white throne judgment. And this is what happens. Check it out on your screen. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone, anyone, not found written in the book of life, was what? Cast into the lake of fire. Ladies and gentlemen, you don't die and that's the end of it. You don't die and then you're annihilated. 
you will live forever in one of two places, heaven or the lake of fire. Choose wisely. All eternity is at stake here. Jesus is the answer for this life, but he's absolutely the answer for the next life. And so is your name written in the book of life? Check out verse 28 as we begin to wrap up. Now when all things are made subject to him, I'm sorry, verse 27, for he, that's the father, has put all things under his, that's the son's, feet. But when he says all things are put under Jesus, it is evident that he, the father, who put all things under him, the son, is accepted. Verse 28. Now when all things are made subject to him, the father, then the son himself will also be subject to the father who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And so what you need to know there is that from all eternity, the Son has always been co-equal with the Father in essence and substance. The Father has always been God. The Son has always been God. But at the end of the millennium, even though they still enjoy the same equal essence, they will not be equal in authority. The Son will be subject to the Father because all sons are supposed to be subject to their dads. Verse 29 Otherwise, he's, he's, he's refuting the, the false teaching in the church that there's no resurrection. Verse 29, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? And so here you have, by the way, one of the most difficult verses in the Bible to interpret but I believe, with a little help from my friends in studying this week, that the key to interpreting verse 29 correctly is in the personal pronouns. We don't believe in being baptized for dead people here. Why not? Look at the personal pronouns in verse 29. Otherwise, what will, what's the word? They do who are baptized for the dead. If the dead do not rise at all. Why then are, what's the word? They baptized for the dead. Verse 30, and why do, what's the word? We. Do you see a change? It was they in verse 29 when he was talking about being baptized for the dead, but now he returns to we in verse 30 when he's talking about the church. So in that day in Corinth, in ancient Greece, there were cults that would baptize people for the dead, proxy baptism for the dead. Paul's not endorsing being baptized for the dead. He changed the pronoun from they to we. He's just referring, even pagan cults baptize people for the dead. He's just referring to something here. And by the way, we know Paul did not believe in baptism for the dead because it's nowhere found in his writings. It's nowhere found in the New Testament. Yet, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, guess what they do? They get baptized for the dead. I read of one Mormon this week who was baptized over 5,000 times for dead people. Now that shouldn't surprise us because the same Mormons early in their history believed that Jesus was the brother of Lucifer. They still to this day believe Jesus was created. Don't be duped. Don't be deceived. The Mormons are a cult. 
And one of their practices is to be baptized for the dead. And it's sad. And so, no, Paul doesn't agree with baptism for the dead. He changed the personal pronoun. And that, then he says now in verse 30, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? If there's no, hey, if there's no resurrection of the dead, why do I put my life on the line every day? Verse 31, I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. Every day I put my life on the line for this gospel. If in the manner of men I have fought with the beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? In other words, what advantage is it to me to expose myself to all these riots and these vicious, violent men who want to kill me? And then look at the end of verse 32. If the dead do not rise, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There's the Epicurean philosophy, the ancient Greek philosopher, I think it's 300 BC, Epicurus, his followers taught only one life, so indulge your flesh. Go for the gusto, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. I was working out in the gym this week and I'm listening to my podcast and this loud music and it's, the song was Go Big or Go Home. And it's about this guy who's passed out in some hotel bar and yet he doesn't learn his lesson, but he keeps drinking more and he keeps indulging his flesh. Why? Because he says, tomorrow we're gonna die. Go big now or go home. Indulge your flesh now. Is that not the philosophy of our world? And it was a philosophy of the ancient Greeks. It was the philosophy of many of the ancient Egyptians. During Egyptian banquets, while they're all partying, they would take a wooden image of a dead guy and put it in a coffin and they wheel the coffin all around the tables where everybody's partying. What was the message? The message is, hey, this is gonna be you someday soon. So drink more, have sex more, party more. You only go around once, go for the gusto. Now, do you think Paul believed in that? Let's find out, last two verses as the worship team comes up. I want you guys to read the first four words in verse 33, go ahead. Don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Now, now get the passion here, okay? We're almost done, but get the passion of Paul's heart here. Verse 34, last verse. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge. In the Greek language there, it's culpable ignorance. It's the people who are choosing a false doctrine of no resurrection in the church. He says, some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your last point. The resurrection is real. Are you ready? One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.